You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing? Doing all right. You getting in the holiday spirit? How are things up at uh, uh, Casa de Folks? Man, you know we got that Christmas tree up, all decorated and shit. Got even, even got some lights strung outside. Which you got uh, lights outside? A little bit. Jesus, my you know. It's like I'm co-hosting with the elf on a shelf over here. My uh, my oldest daughter was really into it when she saw other people had lights on, and she was going to go out there and help me. And she went out there, and I had her kind of holding the lights as I was unstringing them onto our little fence. And then she told me that she had been thinking about it, and she thought she'd better go inside because it was cold. As soon as you started telling that story, number one. I empathized with being shamed into doing something because your small child saw other people doing it. Yep. And when you said that she promised to help you, I knew exactly how this was going, how this was going to end. Yeah. I'm but proud then, of you, though. Getting you know, out there, putting lights outside. We did it. We also then then built a little sled run in the backyard uh, with all this this past week and weekend snow. You got a good yard for sledding. We, that we do. You don't even... Not good for very much else. Not good for, like, pickup games of soccer, but when it comes sledding time... You can sled all the way down that thing and smash into the chain link fence at the bottom. You know what's terrific about your yard is that you don't even have to pay $20,000 a day to truck the snow in from somewhere else. You don't have to. The no. sn- it just falls from the sky <laughs> like right. gold. They're just giving it away. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Fulton & Rourke is a men's grooming company that thoughtfully creates products based on the way guys get ready. The past few weeks, we've been telling you about some cool new stuff debuting in the Fulton & Rourke product line, and this week is no exception. We're pleased right now to let you know about, a drum roll please, a new fragrance. Ben, what's this thing called? Captiva. 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 That sounds awesome. It is. The new limited reserve fragrance, Captiva, features notes of green citrus, wild rock, rose, and salt water. And as part of the launch of the new fragrance, the first 1,000 containers come in a new container, the color of gunmetal. Is gunmetal a color? Just go with it. Add Captiva to the other new Fulton & Rourke offerings, including their new candle, which comes in a flat black porcelain container, offers 80 hours of burn time, and features notes of tobacco, vanilla, and ocean pine, and your whole house will be looking and smelling better in no time. You know the drill at this point. To see these and all the other cool offerings, just go to FultonAndRourke.com. That's Fulton and R-O-A-R-K.com. Captiva. Captiva. We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez. He's a music producer out of Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. That's a beats with a Z. Of course it is. Beats. Nobody just spells anything normally when they're trying to promote some music. Not, not, it's one not thing in, I've learned from this podcast. Not in this day and age. No. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Max Holloway fulfills his lifelong dream to become UFC featherweight (coughs) interim champion. And he's got a witty hashtag, kind of. 
And in round number two, ha-ha, remember that time Donald Cerrone got drunk and joined a union and acted like he was going to stand up for fighters' rights and work to promote the common good? Ha-ha, man, that day was crazy. And in round number three, Page and Sage prepare to rage in the cage this weekend. But how to gauge how they'll handle the big stage? Nice. We'll engage in some repartage. Almost had it all the way up to the end. It's going to be insane. (laughs) God, I hate you. All that plus... (laughs) That was terrible. Uh, All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mage. Just... (laughs) I cracked myself up over here. Uh, The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Sammy Nabulsi. Pretty sure I nailed that one. Actually, that probably wasn't bad. He writes, he or she writes, just rewatched Swanson versus Choi again via a totally legit Eastern European streaming service. As I wait for the inevitable fraud notifications to come rolling in from my bank, my mind reels with questions. Is Cub about to be slapped by USADA for a Game Shark violation? I don't even know what that means. Remember Game Shark was that little thing that you could like use to cheat on Nintendo games to make you super awesome at them? Well, I didn't know that. I, that's what I believe the reference is to. Do all Korean pop stars possess the ability to throw punches while profoundly concussed? Most importantly, with all that bonus money floating around, is it going to be two-for-one margarita night down at Cubby Sampson's? Discuss this awesome shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I imagine there will be a like a commemorative party every year at Cubby Sampson's on this occasion where they just show this fight on a loop while serving discount Korean barbecue. Like an all-day thing? Yeah. You can go down there at noon, and they'll have Swanson versus Choi on the one of the many TVs, probably on all of the televisions in Cubby Sampson's. Right. And you, then when you get too drunk, and you kind of black out, and you come to, and you realize you're still watching the same fight, it'll feel like basically no time has passed. I hear it's dollar wings and half-off fish bowls that day. Oh, that's down, trouble. Down there. That is trouble. At uh, Cubby Sampson. This was legitimately an awesome fight, though. Right smack dab in the middle of what was... A pretty awesome UFC 206 main card. Uh, you kind of got the best of everything out of Cubby Sampson versus Duho Choi, Ben. You, you had the uh, the cagey old veteran and Cub Swanson out there uh, brought in as a test of the metal of the young up-and-comer in the Korean Superboy. Uh, and, and these two guys just went after it. And it winds up with a decision, unanimous decision victory for, for Swanson. Uh but a, a fight where neither guy, I don't think, suffered, uh, well, I would say suffered irreparable damage, but people might think I mean physically, which... Probably both guys probably suffered be, some serious obviously damage did. that way. But in terms of reputation, right. both guys come out of this smelling like a rose. Absolutely. I mean, the I was surprised to hear the crowd in Toronto chanting for the Superboy at some points. Uh, his post-fight interview was just goddamn adorable. Uh, where I think it seemed like they had a pretty awesome translator, uh, although what do I know, uh, where after Cub Swanson gets up there and says, like, hey, I was kind of insulted that he called me out, felt like he thought that maybe I was slipping, and I really wanted to work hard to show that I wasn't. And then when you get the Korean Superboy's side of things, he's like, this might sound a bit silly, but my corner man and I are both just big Cub Swanson fans, and so I wanted to fight him. And you're like, <laughs> could you be any more fucking likable? But, you know, you're right about the, like, this, I think, was one of those fights where you're right, Superboy lost, but the way in which he lost was 
it seemed like he was lacking some experience and some fight IQ, which Sam, Cub, Cub Swanson had that on him. You know, he the youth and the toughness was apparent uh, for Duho Choi, but he just, in some instances, made some kind of inexperienced mistakes. Uh, when he, whenever he got in a, kind of a ground scramble with Swanson, it did not go his way. Uh, and Swanson, when he seemed headed for making some mistakes of his own, like when he got a little too crazy and almost got knocked out when he thought he had uh, the Superboy hurt, you know, he pulled it together. He shows he's been there before, and Choi just hasn't yet. And so that was is what makes you think, yeah, sure, he lost that fight. He deserved to lose the decision. But it was a kind of a necessary learning experience for him, and you can believe that he's probably going to be better for it. Yeah, from a competitive standpoint, I think that all of that is definitely true. And I think from like a, a, a public view standpoint or like a reputation standpoint, maybe even more importantly, uh, nobody comes away from this being like, well, I'm going to skip it the next time. Duho Choi is out there. I'm not. I definitely don't want to watch the Korean Superboy fight again. Well, you, ain't nobody saying that. Nobody saying that. So even though you suffer your first loss in the UFC, you're still 25 years old, a hot commodity, and uh, and if anything, your your profile and your stock may have just even gone up. Well, and that's one of the things that surprised me is that I kind of forgot this fight was on this fight card until like a day or two before, and then being like, oh, holy shit. Cubby Samson versus the Korean Superboy. That shit is this weekend. And it seems like, you know, maybe I just didn't get the right memos from the UFC, but I'm pretty plugged into all the UFC's marketing efforts. You know, we we are right there. Like, if we don't get the, the messages that they're putting out, then they can't be putting them out all that well. Because it seemed like they focused so heavily on interim featherweight title fight. Like, thinking that, okay, we got a shiny belt. That's what's going to sell this thing. Let's just keep repeating that over and over again. And really as you saw in action on this one, what you should have been selling was the package because there wasn't any one standout thing that you looked at it and you thought, I have to pay $60 to see this thing. But when you tell me, okay, you got that good featherweight interim title fight, which doesn't, the belt doesn't really matter, but it's a good matchup. You got Donald Cerrone and Matt Brown. You got Cub Swanson and the Superboy taken together as a unit. Then I start to feel like it's worth 60 bucks. It seems like maybe that should have been the pitch all along. Like a good album. Instead of a collection of singles. There you go. You know what's interesting about Cub Swanson? Uh, leading up to this fight, if we were going to talk about the the featherweight scene, the sometimes wild and crazy featherweight scene, I'm not sure Cub Swanson comes up. You know, at, le- at least not in first breath. Now, suddenly, Cub Swanson quietly has this three-fight win streak. You take a look back at his record, and those losses that he has look pretty goddamn respectable in retrospect. Lost to Max Holloway uh, last April 2015. Prior to that, lost to uh, a guy you might have heard of by the name of Frankie Edgar. Then you got a whole bunch of uh, wins in a row before that loss to Ricardo Lamas back in 2011. And prior to that, a 2010 loss to Chad Mendez and a 2009 loss to Jose Aldo. So Cub Swanson ain't losing to nobody who's not really, really good at this shit. And, you know, at only 33 years of age, I'm not sure... Uh, you know, we should be ready to write the guy off. Like, it's Man, really only thirty three. Yeah, uh, it kind of got a little bit of a just Joe turned, Riggs thing going just on. Just turned thirty three. Wow. In er- early November, Cub Swanson was born in nineteen eighty three. How old does that make you feel? <laughs> wow, makes me feel old. Next question this week comes to us from Rusty in Atlanta. He writes: whilst watching, f- <coughs> whilst watching Fight Night one hundred two, which saw CME Spirit Animal Derek Lewis beat Shamil Abdurra. 
that guy, I couldn't help but think about the steaming pile of dog crap that is the UFC rankings and how detrimental five-round main events could be to them. Lewis's TKO came in the fourth round of a fight in which he lost the first three rounds. If this was a three-rounder, Shamil would have won and technically moved up the rankings. If the UFC ever gets a non-biased legitimate ranking system, do you think they will have to eliminate five-round non-title fights for this reason? Just curious to, to hear your discoursiness on this one. Huh. I don't know about this. The the logic at work here with the if it had been a three round fight, right. Derek Lewis would have lost. It uh, wasn't, so he didn't. I mean, it seems unfair to apply that standard after the fact when they both went in there knowing how many rounds the damn thing right. was scheduled for. See, I, I could see uh, I could see this being a problem if the guys if you were just springing it on them like they show up to the arena and you suddenly you tell them it's a five round round fight instead of a three round fight. Although, uh, if you come out on the losing end of this kind of fight, if you are, in fact, Shamil Abdurakimov, uh, I could feel, I could see being a little salty about it or, or like, you know, that being one of the things that you tell yourself as a way to, to get over this loss or edge past this loss in a, uh, he was the better man tonight kind of a way. <laughs> okay. Like, had this only been three rounds, boy, I would have, I really would have taken it. Now, but, but but like I don't know that the rankings I don't know that that any kind of future ranking system for the UFC would come into play for a reason to not do five round uh, non title fights because like we said everybody kind of knows what they're getting into or should know leading up to this fight but I I have long been on the record saying that I think automatically making all main event fights in the UFC five rounds is kind of random and silly. Because it does, like, the difference between a three-round fight and a five-round fight is significant. It's like you're having a whole other fight almost. Uh, and, and to decide which fights are going to be five rounds almost based on the quality of the other fights around them, to me, has never made sense. Like, Derek Lewis versus Shamil Abdurahimov is five rounds because it's on a fight pass card with Francis Ngannou versus Anthony Hamilton and a bunch of other kind of random stuff. If it was a week later... On UFC 206, it would probably be three rounds and be on the undercard, which, you know, to me, it's like it's, uh, that, that, uh, that's never really made sense. I'm totally cool with having some fights be three rounds and some fights be five rounds, but the idea that just because it's a, a, a main event on, you know, whatever particular card it's going to be on makes it five rounds is, is, has never made sense to me. Yeah, and also there's the added little wrinkle that if you get put in a main event and you're expected to fight five rounds, you don't get paid any more money. Right. You still get your regular contracted fee. Right. Which, there. I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but one time when I interviewed Dan Hardy, he was talking about how he fought George St. Pierre in that title fight as the last fight on like uh, either his first or whatever his current UFC contract was. So he basically didn't make any more money than he would have you know, in a three-round fight against some other random welterweight. And he he was like, I think he said he would never do that again because you go out there and have a five-round fight, you know, one more round and you would essentially have two fights and going out there to fight George St. Pierre for, you know, the same money you would have got to fight Jake Ellenberger in a three-round fight was kind of a raw deal. Yeah. Also, though, this mentions uh, the whole rankings, if the UFC ever gets a non-biased legitimate ranking system, which it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. If there was a, la a co-main event podcast laugh track, I could have hit the button. <laughs> but, you know, I, and it came up in uh, Corey Anderson's fight where he mentioned it afterwards. 
it seems like fighters take those UFC rankings super seriously. And I guess I can understand why they would. Let's on the UFC website. The UFC probably uses it uh, in contract negotiations. You know they like to use it on the broadcast a it, lot. It assigns a literal number to your worth. That's both right. Like as a person and as a commodity. And they take it so seriously. And it seems like everybody else, like they, it seems like they're the only ones who aren't in on the joke there. Everybody else is like, okay, these aren't that legit though. You know, I can understand how it's kind of being forced on you and you... You were led to believe that this is super serious, but these rankings are kind of poppycock, if you will. Yeah, they're janky. And it like didn't uh, didn't the idea of of MMA rankings, like independent MMA rankings, come up in front of Congress last week when uh, when Randy that Couture is... was over there uh, testifying or just speaking in front of Congress about the possible. Uh, expansion of the Ali Act to cover mixed martial arts? That is one of the things that the honorable gentleman from Oklahoma, Mr. Mark Wayne Mullen, uh, likes to to talk about is the lack of an independent sanctioning body to, to issue rankings, that the UFC is kind of responsible for the rankings, that it's been known to manipulate the rankings. Uh, so yeah, he gets on that one a lot. You know what would be awesome, awesomer, in my opinion, about five-round and three-round fights is if... Uh, I mean, you, I guess you can continue to make main events five-round fights if you, want to, if you want to, but I also feel like five-round fights should be an awesome uh, trump card that fighters can pull out. Like if you were involved in a, in a vicious feud with someone, you can be like, all right, pulling it out and slap it on the table. Let's make it five rounds. Oh, that's, that's a sweet pro wrestling move right there. I think there. so too. It's just better than you know, randomly making the main event five rounds of every show. Okay. Next question this week from Brady Carlson, the, the original champ. Of listener mail. Been a while since we heard from him. Listener mail goat, Brady Carlson. He writes, can we discuss the conundrum that is Kelvin Gastelum? That guy is infuriating outside of the cage, but inside he shows himself to be world class. What am I supposed to do with my mixed emotions for K-Gast? First of all, you should probably stop calling him K-Gast because that's not going to take off. But I feel you, man. I feel you, Brady Carlson, on this one because I'm watching that fight thinking, man, he looks good against Tim Kennedy, who... In fairness, did look like he was showing a little bit of the signs of all that time off. But, you know, Kelvin Gaslam really put it on him. Tim Kennedy is not a guy who gets finished, and he finished him. And you're thinking, all right, maybe this is the sign. Maybe that you should just be a middleweight, ride that train, see how far it goes, stop all this trying and failing to be a welterweight business, and just try your luck at 185. Maybe this is going to be the experience that finally alerts you to, like, the need for this. And then he gets on the mic, and it's, baby, give me one more chance. Yeah. It was like, speaking of laugh tracks, if you if the UFC had like a, oh, like a disappointed <laughs> yeah, sound yeah. it could use, wah, I feel wah. like we all made that sound when Kelvin Gaslam jumped on the mic and immediately announced uh, his chance to go back and, and fail again at being a welterweight, uh, especially since... Uh, he looks so damn good at middleweight. Like, it doesn't feel like there is a reason, really, for him to go back to welterweight. In fact, the UFC broadcast team was kind of queuing up its talking points about how Kelvin Gastelum should rightfully be a welterweight at the beginning of this thing when it looked like Tim Kennedy was going to have his way. And then by the end of it, they had kind of completely flip-flopped and were like, well, maybe he should just stay here. Maybe cutting all that weight isn't good for him. So, yeah, a great performance by Kelvin Gastelum against a Tim Kennedy that you admitted was, was you know, coming in maybe with some ring rust and also now 37 years old, probably not totally – uh in his prime as a mixed martial arts fighter. Yeah, it was especially, you know, you could see how quickly he got tired. He's not a dude who gets tired. So, you know, you could tell that he was a little off there. But Kevin Gaslam did look really good. I think the deal they should offer him, though, is that 
they should tell him, all right, you can be a welterweight again, but first you have to lose a middleweight fight because he has never lost at middleweight. And so the deal should be they should make him fight at middleweight until he loses, see how far he can go with it. If he wants to be a welterweight that bad, go out there and throw one, Kelvin. Go out there and, and get beat up. Then we'll let you go down to, to welterweight again. Otherwise, you got to keep going until somebody proves that you shouldn't be a middleweight. Have we, uh, do we have a real good reason straight from the mouth of Kelvin Gastelum about why he appears to be so intent at continuing to be a welterweight? Do we, I think we... he just thinks he's too small for middleweight. Which, I mean, if you put Kelvin Gastelum and Yuel Romero side by side, sure. I mean, I sure, I can understand how you might feel that way, but let somebody make that point to you inside the cage before you, you decide that that's the, the hard and fast conclusion. Also, with Kelvin Gastelum, man, making that, he's 25 right now. Making 170 pounds is not going to get any easier as no. time goes on, as Anthony Pettis showed us all uh, in his first, or not his second attempt, I guess, at making featherweight. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, Lando fucking Venata, pearls before swine, exclamation point. Can we stop this bullfuckery of burying an awesome fight on the internet? How many assholes watched Lando do some spinning shit to the face area of Jonathan Terrence MacDessie and then swagger jack a Mark Hunt walk-off? I'll go ahead and answer that question. Less. Less watched it. Fewer? Less than pay-per-view buys and less than have FS1. Uh, only shit-eating wild men and dumbasses like me who object to the idea of the fightpass.com and yet keep forgetting to cancel it saw the highlight reel moment. In the era of W-E-B-I-N-G-ing, uh, or webbing. I can't decide if that's a intentional W-M-E-I-M-G burn or... I'm just going to roll with it. Of In the era of webbing, that's in all caps with a, a, a dash in the middle of it, needing uh, marketable stars who can bring dollars... Uh, to the dance, isn't it counterproductive to put potential stars on your service that is only viewed by hardcore fans? Now, in fairness, Groovy Lando's fight did get replayed on the Fox Sports broadcast. Yes, it did. Uh, I after, mean, after the feature, the so-called featured prelim, right? Yeah, which they referred to during the, the broadcast. Joe Rogan, when he interviewed Misha Serkinov, said what a great accomplishment it was for him to get this win and to, to do it in the, the main event. Uh, by which he meant the prelim main event, by which he meant not a thing, just saying words. But, you know, it, I see the point because if his fight hadn't been so damn quick, there probably would not have been time to squeeze it in on the Fox Sports broadcast. And what you would have ended up with, what you were planning for if you're the UFC, is that you take this guy who is an interesting up-and-comer who got everybody's attention, even in that loss against Tony Ferguson, and then you stick him on the internet stream because, hey, you got to put something on that internet stream to make people, uh, to keep people like Eric Murphy from figuring out that they could just go ahead and cancel that shit. You got to keep feeding content to that. And the consequence could be that you're building up a guy for the smallest segment of your audience. Yeah, we, we've talked about it before. For a while, it seemed like a clever a clever marketing ploy for the fightpass.com. Uh, I'm having trouble deciding if I still feel that way or not. Like uh, uh, it feels in the case of a guy like Lando Venata, like kind of a bummer, honestly uh, to, to, as Eric Murphy said, bury him down there. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you got to do something with that, with the, with the digital streaming service to try to make it right. attractive to, uh, to subscribers, especially if, uh, you're going to cut back the the total number of events next year, which I think we're all at least assuming will happen at the detriment of Fight Pass. 
you, I mean, you got to keep offering some kind of compelling product and it helps to have the arrangements with the smaller uh, independent organizations and show those events on Fight Pass. But the real selling point, the real calling card for that thing should be original UFC programming. And by original programming, I guess I mean fights, not necessarily like a sitcom. Where are they now? Yeah. Uh, so Extended it, Megan O'Leary interviews? In, until you get to the point where you're going to be able to buy, or buy some kind of macro package where you get absolutely everything uh that's a you're in a tough spot kind of yeah and that is one of the things i keep saying is that if you're going to have the fightpass.com at all we can't complain that there's nothing good on there but then also complain hey why are you putting good stuff on there we got to kind of choose one and i yeah i definitely see what they're thinking although if i am lando fucking venata as eric murphy points out i i'm saying all right i went out there and i put on a, a highlight reel knockout for you on your fight pass thingy Next time, you better get me on TV and, like, plan for me to be on TV, not put me on TV just because you happen to have some time. Like, I'm, I think I've paid my fight pass dues. You know what I just thought of that we didn't talk about when we were talking about Cub Swanson and Duho Choi that I remembered because Landon Venata is also from the Jackson Winklejohn Academy, and that is how awesome Greg Jackson added, acted uh, yes. during the Swanson-Duho uh, Choi fight. If you, if you can find any of the videos of the corner audio uh, pretty our, awesome. Our Twitter friend, uh, Jessica Hudnall, I think that's how you say her, her name. She, she has a bunch of those clips from the audio. Uh, and yeah, they are pretty awesome, especially when he is yelling at his fellow cornermen, uh, and <laughs> telling them not to get so excited. God damn it. Uh, yeah. And then at the, the very end, yeah, is, that's is, our fight, motherfucker. <laughs> yes. That's when he allows himself to get excited, uh, is when he knows it's over and such. Yes. That's our fight, motherfuckers. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Jeff. Rack or Jeff Rock. I'm going to say Jeff Rock because, frankly, that's an awesome name, Jeff okay. Rock. He writes, good sirs, after what feels like years of denials and recriminations, the UFC has said this past week it plans to create a women's featherweight division. While the Dana White attempt to throw Chris Justino under the bus feels familiar and is probably worth a remark, I have more practical questions. Presumably, bantamweights who move up could make up the bulk of the new division. Who are the most likely inaugural athletes and does the prospect of getting one's shit punched in by Justino keep this from becoming a last resort for fighters seeking a career resurgence at the weight class. Uh, listener mail writers are coming pretty strong. That's right. Days. That's right, they are. We've got the, this whole this whole crop this week, especially. Good stuff from you guys. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question, though. I mean, we've, we, we think we have a 145 division in the offing and 125 pounds. Seems like it's coming at some point sooner or later. I just think regardless of who the actual names are, uh, it's a positive step for the female athletes in this sport to have more choices than just two. You know, you'd probably you're probably going to have a, a a great mix of people either moving down to 125 or moving up to 145 because not everybody fits uh, in this like cookie cutter 135 pound weight class. This is why you have weight classes to begin with, so different people can fight in different spots. Uh, and 145 pounds, I think, has at least the potential to be. Uh, kind of an exciting weight class, you know. I think people like Holly Holm have talked about being a little big for for 135, and and would think at least think about 145. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, uh, or at least some crossover potential at that weight class. I think it's interesting though because isn't that one of the things we always heard about why they won't do a 125 weight class? Is hey, you'd lose too many people from 135. Uh, 
too many of the people who felt like, okay, I'll go there because that's the weight class the USC have, they they would drop down and it would just dilute the divisions. But if you create a 145 pound weight class, and some of the people are going to think, okay, I'll I'll go up there. I'll you know, especially if I seem to have hit like a career dead end at 135, I can reinvent myself as a a women's featherweight. Except waiting up there at 145. Is Chris Cyborg Justino ready to punch your whole shit in? The boss at the end of the level. That's right. You gotta, you gotta fight the boss. So it's a little bit of a deterrent. Like you really have to want to go up to 145 and feel like that's where you belong and really like your chances because you might get your whole shit broke up there. There's a pretty good chance of it. But at the same time, the one question we always hear when people talk about should there be a 145 pound women's division is are there any good like, are there enough good women's 145 pounders to fill such a division? That's the problem. Yeah, and I just think having the opportunity is a positive, regardless if there are, you know, a bunch of, of people that are going to be full-time featherweights or not. I think that it's, you know, I think you would have a, a lot of mix-and-match type situations, people kind of having options and going to bantamweight or going to featherweight based on what the best opportunity of the moment was kind of like you have the potential to have it at featherweight and lightweight in the, in the men's side of things. Uh, I don't, I think that like this thinking, this kind of like thinking that you need a stable of uh, like consistent performers who will only fight at that weight strikes me as like kind of old school thinking. I feel like we've seen the breakdown of a lot of that, kind of very rigid philosophy over the last couple of years, but you know, for better or for worse, I'm not talking about some money weights. Yeah. Money weight type shit. Like, uh, you know, as long as you have anyone like the, the, the main point is put a goddamn belt on Chris Cyborg, right? Yeah. So you can promote her as a fucking champion. And then whoever wants to go up there and get themselves some can do it. Like, I don't well, think okay, you need a- like, unless you, you know, you're worried about populating your top 15 rankings list. Like, you don't need a full division. You just need someone who's game enough to go up there and fight her for that title. It will look silly if, like, 6 through 15 is TBA. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's a point that uh, Jeff Rock, uh, we assume that's how he wants to have his name said anyway. He makes, and he says, the Dana White attempt to throw Chris Justino under the bus feels familiar. And normally I'm all for uh, calling Dana White out when he does that stuff. And, of course, he is always a little too eager to speak disparagingly about fighters who don't do exactly as he wants them Probably to. I have a feeling we're going to talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> I think we are. But this is an instance where when you hear both Dana White and Cyborg lay out what happened, and you can kind of see in their intersecting narratives what probably actually did happen there, and you feel like, man, the UFC keeps, like, relenting and keeps giving up ground and keeps trying to make it a little bit easier for cyborg and she keeps making it harder like she you know there's been you know the sympathy for her is only going to go so far because before when it was like okay she's great but you got to get down to 135 if you want to fight here okay maybe you don't you have to get to 140 and we all said that's stupid she's killing herself to get to 140 and that's not even a weight class and then the ufc says all right we'll do 145 and you can you can fight for a title and we'll give you eight weeks notice uh and she says, no, I can't do it. That's not enough time. And that's where I feel like public sentiment might start to turn a little bit. And we'll say, wait a minute. It seems like the UFC has finally treated you rationally and fairly, and you're still trying to make it tough on them. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. Jeff Rock sounds like a member of an influential 1980s breakdancing crew. Or like, uh, you know, he's the the leader of a band that's going to just tear it up at the county fair this summer. <laughs> 
That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes, the oddities that we miss every day when we're not recording the podcast. Something always happens. Some news always breaks. The newsletter itself is short it's informative we would like to think it's funny uh you can read an unverified listener mail rant of the week in there that we don't have time to get on the podcast and if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, coming out of the interim featherweight title match between Max Holloway and Anthony Pettis that turned out to be a catchweight fight at 148 pounds, just in case you didn't have enough fucking layers on this onion, you got to have to add one more. Just got to keep chipping away at the legitimacy of that interim featherweight title, don't you, Chad? My question is, do you think you can just roll down to H&M and buy a mirrored hexagon tie? Or like... <laughs> If you're Max Holloway, is that the kind of thing you have to get from a legitimate tailor? I, you know, you got to know somebody. You got to have a guy for that? You got to have a guy for that. A guy it, willing to serve up mirrored ties. If not a guy who actually like is going to sit down and make you a tie like that, you at least got to know somebody who's like, I can, I can make a few calls. Because you do not, that's not off the rack. I know that maybe they have different stuff on offer in the department stores in Hawaii, but that is not just, that's not, especially this time of year, maybe in summer, maybe when it's time for prom, maybe you'll see some of those laying around. With the gold pocket square too, just looking good as hell. And in case you're wondering if Jerome Max Holloway has had someone change his Wikipedia photo to be him holding the belt with the mirrored hexagon tie, Oh, man, you got another thing coming. You need to get over there and check that out. You got the sweet little, like, Al Capone mustache going on there. We jest, but Ben, isn't the end result of this thing that Max Holloway, who's been creeping on a come-up for a while in the featherweight division, may be able to look back at UFC 206 as kind of his star turn moment? Because... You know, we've always known Max Holloway was a super good fighter, but I feel like the addition of the hexagon mirrored tie, uh, the halfway amusing hashtag, where's Waldo, uh, to refer to quote unquote undisputed featherweight champion Jose Aldo, uh, and, and some of the kind of like fun loving antics of Max Holloway leading up to this fight make him seem like a, a likable guy at this, at this weight. Yeah. Well, and, and by weight, I mean, 148. <laughs> and when you watch that performance against Anthony Pettis, you see, man, Max Holloway has gotten so much better. Not that he was ever really bad, but even when you compare him, you know, for a couple of years ago to the fighter he is now, you just don't see a whole lot of holes that anybody can exploit there. Hey, that, could, that guy can kind of be scary. And, you know, a, a patient tactical approach against Anthony Pettis. And then once he saw the opening, boom, he exploited it got Anthony Pettis out of there, which not an easy thing to do. Yeah, and the the a fight between Max Holloway and Jose Aldo, I think, is just gravy at this point. That's just going to be awesome. 
I was thinking, though, in the wake of this fight, obviously we have given a lot of grief over the past few weeks to this idea of an interim title. And now that we know that uh, Jose Aldo came out today in MMA fighting, I believe he talked to Guillermo Cruz and said he's down to meet Max Holloway at UFC 208, I think it is. Uh, in February. In February. Isn't that one in Brooklyn? I think so. In the BK at the at the Barclay Center? Meaning that the interim here will be about two months. Right. So basically number one contender. But I was thinking, like, it actually kind of does make sense to have a featherweight title if you are the UFC and you were worried about Jose Aldo, like, coming back to fight again, right? Because we've had this kind of back and forth with Aldo where he hasn't seemed particularly interested in coming back to fight uh, against anyone besides Conor McGregor. Uh, he kind of he had to have a special meeting at the UFC headquarters, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like that's been resolved. It seems like he will come back to fight Max Holloway. But if you were worried that that wasn't going to happen, then maybe it does actually make sense to have this featherweight title so you could have just promoted Max Holloway. I'm talking entirely in retrospect now if this UFC 208 fight does actually happen, but maybe that was the thinking. You still are... Every time you have to just name somebody as a champion, even if it's just like promoting the interim champion to the full champion... Especially when we all know that if we're following the belt around as far as wins and losses go, it's still sitting on that Irishman's shoulder. You lose a little bit of legitimacy every single time you have to say, okay, now this guy's the champion. Yeah. We decided because because of something somebody else did or won't do, this guy is now the champion. Every time, and if you had to do that like a couple times in a row, at some point it just becomes a joke. Yeah, and I think that the discussion leading up to that fight between Holloway and Aldo will probably be about whether either of those guys can or should be content with merely being the featherweight champion in the absence of Conor McGregor, right? Especially for Jose Aldo, it seems like an awkward fit to be the quote-unquote undisputed champion after we all know you got knocked out in 13 seconds by the guy who was the champion before the UFC took it away from him for one reason or another. Uh, and Aldo, Relinquished is what you mean. He yes, relinquished they relinquished it. him yes. from the title, <laughs> or they relinquished the title from him. Uh, so yeah, I don't know that anyone can fully be super comfortable with the idea of being featherweight champion without fighting Conor McGregor. And since Conor McGregor also represents the biggest payday than anyone can have in this sport, I doubt that you will see featherweights stop talking about him. And you know you won't see him stop talking about featherweights anytime soon. We'll have to see how that develops. Now, let's hang our heads in shame a moment and talk about the guy, Pretty Tony Pettis. Because... He messed this up all sorts of ways. Yeah, he did. From the start, when he didn't make weight. Before the, before he didn't make weight, remember, I don't know if you saw that he was on the UFC Embedded uh, like a couple days before weigh-ins, enjoying himself like a steak dinner. Oh, yeah, I did see that. And like m much of the... Uh, like much of the editorial content of the episode of Embedded that I watched talked about Anthony Pettis being too small for lightweight, that featherweight was his natural spot. And of course he comes and, and blows the way in and, and we know that's not true. After the fight, I mean, he broke his hand in the first round, which sucks for him because that, that limited what he was able to do. Not that it seemed like he was going to go out there and steamroll Max Holloway anyway. After the fight, when he gets on the mic and says he can't make 145 and is going back up to lightweight after this fight, I mean, cue the laugh track again, because holy shit, dude, I'm glad you didn't win. I'm glad you didn't <laughs> win the featherweight interim championship only to announce. Sorry, guys, I'm going back to lightweight like well, that. Now that 
would have been a disaster. Well, if he won, then the title was not going to be on the line. Right, yeah. I mean, I'm talking about it. We were lucky he didn't make weight and win the title and then be like, oh, this was a hard weight cut. I have to go back up to lightweight because then, <laughs> Jesus, where would we be? Well, if he'd been able to make weight and then still win, maybe his attitude about whether he could fight there would be changed. It does make you wonder, though, what what your fortunes are going to be like because ping pong back and forth between weight classes after a string of losses it's not really a great look for anybody. Yeah, we're uh, we're like two fights away from him deciding he's a welterweight or something. Decide he's going, well, this was the fight where he went back to basics, right, and decided to be the old Anthony Pettis again. There you go, following that script. You know, what I wonder, though, is that if, if Max Holloway is going to turn around now as the interim featherweight title and unify, for everybody who can't see me right now, you know I'm doing the air quotes, the featherweight belts with Jose Aldo in two months' time, it's a little bit of a screw job for him. He just put in this training camp to fight Anthony Pettis, and then he has to turn around and fight Jose fucking Aldo in two months. And, like, you know, that means being in camp basically over the holidays, like turning right around and getting right back into training camp for another fight. Yeah, maybe, but it kind of seemed, I mean, not that it was his idea. They were, pl- I think they were planning to have the winner fight Aldo at 208 anyway, but, like, he certainly didn't shy away from the idea. He all but called Aldo out and said, meet me in, in, in uh, Brooklyn. Let's do the damn thing. So, like... Even had a hashtag ready. Even had his hashtag ready. Maybe he will find out in retrospect that maybe that was a bad idea, but I don't know, man. Like, he seems ready to go, so. I almost, I want to get behind that hashtag. A part of me wants to get behind a clever, well thought out hashtag. And I guess the problem is it seems too thought out. And like when somebody comes to you and is like, Hey guys, I have this idea. Everybody do this hashtag thing. Like, it's the thing that I've come up with to shame somebody else. And you're like, I don't know, man. I feel like I just I'm I'm buying in too much to what you're selling if I jump on there and start using that hashtag. Shame it hashtag. It has to be a little bit more organic. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we will move on to round two this week. Ben, did you see that the fucking socialist backwater of Canada made Emil Mech leave his Viking battle axe at the customs booth? On his way into the country? I thought you were going to say that they made him trim his beard. That too. Are you fucking kidding me, Canada? First you try to kill Brock Lesnar, and now this. You make a meal mech leave his battle axe in customs. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. You know that, like, the customs agent is probably super into Dungeons and Dragons and saw that battle axe coming and was like, oh, I'm taking this home tonight. Yeah, no, you can't bring that in. This is going to look good above the mantelpiece. You're going to need to put that one right there over next to my personal items. Um, Canada, I kid because I love. You know that. (laughs) As a resident of South Canada, come on, I can say that, right? We're all friends here. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Uh, My, are you fucking kidding me, Chad? You know... Corey Anderson debuted his new nickname. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Beaston 258 is no more, although he says that it is still the brand. Okay. Yeah. However, okay. <laughs> <laughs> see, we don't even need a laugh track if it's good enough. You'll be our laugh track. Ah, brand. Uh, <laughs> you're making me laugh. Uh, now he's overtime, which yeah, is apparently okay. is a nickname that Frankie Edgar came up with. And you can... Especially given the nickname, you can only imagine what the conversation must have been like here with Frankie Edgar saying, like, look, people are making fun of you with this nickname. This this nickname is a source of mockery and derision. You got to come up with here. How about this? I'll just I'll come up with a one word nickname that basically means the same thing and captures the same spirit. And you can just use that instead. You don't even have to thank me. 
Uh, just just roll with it. And so now Corey Anderson is overtime. Beaston 25-8. I'm going to miss it. However, I guess I won't because now it's the brand. Are you fucking kidding me? That's not that's not a thing. You fucking kidding that me? That doesn't make any sense, man. Also, I'm still going to call him Beaston 25-8 forever. So I'm not giving up on that. You, if you would have given me some warning about what your Are You Fucking Kidding Me was about this week, we could have got a trumpet player to come in and play taps. <laughs> for beasts in 25-8. Yeah, that sounds like something we would do. Yeah, we spare no expense over here. You can picture, though, can't you? Old man Edgar at home in the rocking chair taking his uh, his notebook out of his, his shirt pocket and licking the pencil. The little golf pencil he keeps with it, yeah. Yeah, and just starting to, to jot down some ideas, telling the missus, like, oh, I gotta help this kid, Corey Anderson. I gotta help him. It's a damn shame what's happening to him on the internet. Corey all day Anderson. Oh, scratch that out. <laughs> anyway, that's gonna... Actually, that's gonna not bad. Eh, I just came up with it, so... Maybe Corey Anderson is listening. That can be uh, my brand. Yeah, it's the it's the brand. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, it seems that Donald Anthony Cerrone has had a little bit of a change of heart. Originally, he was one of the the five guys to come out for the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association, Ma, Ma. Uh, a, a board member, apparently, up there talking Much about, to his surprise. He didn't know he was going to have to sit on some board. Supposedly, he did not know that. Uh, he He got out there with some quotes about how... He was scared too, but damn it, we're going to ride this thing until the wheels fall off, really rallying the troops. Then after Dana White was not so pleased with it and pointed out how he had helped Donald Cerrone at least once in the past, old Cowboy started to change the tune a little bit. Now he went out there and he got himself a a statement win over Matt Brown. Awesome head kick finish with just a sickening crack to the jaw. Uh, and afterwards, it sounded an awful lot like Donald Cerrone had had a private conversation with Dana White, who was like, hey, I'll, I can take care of you and the things that you want. And Donald Cerrone said, okay. And that whole kind of together we are stronger through collective action thing seems to have been pushed by the wayside. It felt a little bit like, you know, everybody in the, the workplace is unhappy and the boss pulls one guy aside and says, hey, if you needed some money, why don't you just come to me? We don't need to put it in a contract. We don't need to like change the whole structure here. You know, if you if you need something, you you need you, new suit of clothes or something, just just come and ask. I'll kick you down some money. Yeah, we don't totally know where Donald Cerrone's head is at on that front as of yet, but it, I think it's the way to guess that that is that that's what happened. That that that's where we are moving forward. And uh, if you needed a crash course in how this labor movement thing is going to go in the UFC. You got one in the, what, week and change since the announcement of the Mixed Martial Arts Athlete Association uh, because it it came out as probably the highest profile effort to organize UFC fighters yet, certainly not the only one, but immediately on the heels of that announcement, the headlines have been Donald Cerrone kind of changing his tune. The headlines have been George St. Pierre suddenly back in negotiations with the UFC for a return. The headlines have been uh, the other players in the 
effort to organize MMA fighters, not taking kindly to the emergence of a potential ally or a, you know, team member. And then you got Tim Kennedy who goes out there and loses his fight uh, against Kelvin Gastelum. And you would assume if you're the UFC and you want to cut the legs out from under the ma, Mama. you can just go ahead and cut Tim Kennedy because they made it really clear at that at their press event that they were only focusing on UFC fighters. So if Tim Kennedy is no longer a UFC fighter, I'm not sure what political clout he has to operate inside that organization. So you got to think at this point, a week removed from the, the press conference, that the Mixed Martial Arts Athlete Association is basically dead in the water unless Tim or uh, TJ Dillashaw and, and Kane Velasquez are going to uh, lead the charge. Uh, and that's really disappointing, frankly. And, and, Yet, not necessarily surprising with how we knew it would be a difficult struggle to get any kind of actual collective bargaining uh, underway in this sport. Yeah, and some of what's happening is indicative of why it's been so difficult for fighters to get after that in the first place. It's just because it's tough for them to stand together when there are a lot of forces at work that can kind of pull them apart. But also, this particular effort seemed flawed. From the very beginning. Yeah, uh, yeah. The presence of Bjorn Rebney forces you to ask a lot of questions because Bjorn Rebney was in a position where he could have done some stuff for to, to improve fighter treatment, fighter pay, all that stuff when he was in charge of Bellator, and it didn't seem like a very important issue to him then. It didn't seem like something he was super passionate about. So it forces you to ask the, the question if he shows up leading it now, why now? What kind of what changed? Like, why is this such an important issue to you now? And, you know, Occam's Razor uh, would tell us that probably it's because he sees an opportunity there. That seems to be the easiest explanation, that he saw, like, okay, here's an opportunity to kind of get back in the the MMA world. Uh, here's an opening that has not yet been exploited, and there's, there might be some money in there down the line. Uh, and when you hear that they had, we were trying to get in on the antitrust lawsuit, if they could be like promised a portion of the proceeds to their unnamed investors, according to the uh, MMA FA people, that all kind of paints a certain picture yeah. about this thing. And one of the biggest problems here, even beyond the involvement of Bjorn Rebney, has is now and will always be that it's asking an awful lot of these individual athletes to put aside their personal concerns and think about the common good or think about what's going to be good for the athletes at large. And one of the things that I thought was, I don't know if exciting is the real is the right word, but one of the, the, the things that was most interesting about having Donald Cerrone out there as a member of this group was that he was the most prominent UFC guy the most active UFC guy uh, involved in this effort, a guy who had always seemed like a company guy, a well-liked guy. Everybody likes Donald Cerrone, the fighter, in in the mixed martial arts industry. Uh, and frankly, to see him walk back his support, if that is indeed how this goes, and if uh, here on into the future we never speak of that, the day that Donald Cerrone joined the union, uh, that seems like a pretty un-cowboy move in terms of fitting in with the wild and crazy seat-of-the-pants uh, horse-riding image that he has cultivated for himself. Uh, and so that is is 
is the kind of disappointing to me. Although I say again, like you're asking a lot of these athletes to sacrifice their own brief window of, of, you know, earning potential to do something that could be positive for, for the common good. Yeah. And I think though, maybe, maybe there's a distinction to be made between what we perceive as the cowboy persona and what what might actually be happening here because the way he phrased it was like hey some friends of mine asked me to to get in on this thing and help them out and i said yes and then uh you know somebody else said hey that wasn't a cool move man and i said oh shit man maybe you're right like it, would it surprise you to learn that the the same guy who has done all the other cowboy things might be a guy who did not think through a lot of this stuff super heavily before making some decisions. No, it wouldn't on surpri- both sides. it wouldn't surprise me at all. I'm just saying like when you put the t-shirt on. Like at some point when you put <laughs> okay. the t-shirt on and stand there gripping and grinning for the photo op, it has to cross your mind at some point what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and I think what's also disappointing is that Dana White responded to that especially in terms of cowboy by just following the damn playbook. He he responded exactly like exactly. we knew he would. Like without Without any, there were no, let's just say there were no surprises. No curveballs in that at all. First step, you run down the guy's career accomplishments. Like, he wasn't even that good. He never held a title. He only main evented like three events for us. Uh, and now he wants to complain about his money. And that's always what, what Dana White is going to do. When, it doesn't matter. You're, you're going to complain about money. Well, hey, either you were never that good or you're not that good anymore. You were good once, maybe. You know, you you never moved the needle. It's always that that line of criticism, and then turns around to like, and I helped him out this one time, so therefore he could never say anything ever again. Like he can never say that there is like a systemic problem in this sport of how athletes are treated because of this one time that I that I helped him out. Um, and it kind of just drives me crazy that it actually worked on him. He when he went when he had to respond to that he was like it's true I never held a belt and it's true he did really help me out I should have called him and you're like no that's not the takeaway yeah. here here's the quote which is uh, it's the nail in the coffin man as far as I'm concerned this is Cerrone at the post fight press conference it reminds me of when you get in trouble with your dad and they don't ground you they just tell you how disappointed they are in you which is worse so that's kind of what he meaning Dana White did to me I guess I should have let him know what I was getting involved in. That's a, just a punch in the gut if you are a person who is interested in seeing fighters having a, a a better and bigger voice in their own futures, man. It's kind of like when you get in trouble with your dad. Ooh, boy. That's, boy, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, can we talk for one minute about the fight, I guess, though? Sure. Because, I mean, like... Cracker jack of a fight. You can't say enough about how good Donald Cerrone has looked at welterweight since... Coming up to 170 this year, he's probably going to be a fashionable pick for fighter of the year when we all get together to do our end of the year recap pieces so we don't have to work uh, but between the weeks of Christmas and New Year's. Should get started on those. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's 4-0 and this year, 4-0 and at welterweight, and uh, a, a real statement performance against Matt Brown, who he kind of ran circles around. Certainly Matt Brown had his moments, but uh, this was Cowboys tonight, I think, in, in all ways, especially... Uh, with the jab and with the, with the combinations and with that head kick that he landed three or four times before finally landing the one that shut the lights out. Yeah, and when he gets up there afterwards and talks about how he wants to turn right around and fight again in Denver. Uh, Another thing that was the, like the nail in the coffin for any kind of like 
union talk, I thought. Well, I think that's just, you know, that that's in keeping with the the cowboy persona that we've come to know, is that he just wants to fight as often as possible. And that's another one of the things why I've said before in the past that the UFC should be going out of its way to make sure a guy like Donald Cerrone never has cause to complain about pay or treatment or anything because he is exactly who you want all your other fighters to be. Like, the guy with an action style always goes out there, delivers, you can always count on him for a good fight, and he wants to do it as often as possible. Um, but when he starts talking about a fight with Demian Maya, which he has brought up several times now, like, I feel my, my heart starts to beat a little faster. And I just, I feel like that maybe is a too beautiful and too pure a possibility <laughs> to exist in this world, because my God, would I love to see that fight. Wow, that's... Speaking of no surprises, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not surprised that that is your reaction Come on, to man. the idea of that fight. You want to see. I'd watch it. Hashtag would watch. Yes, you would. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, the dynamic duo is back this Saturday from the Golden One Center in Sacramento, California. Paige Van Zant and Sage Northcutt, kind of like they're on tour, are about to do another joint engagement here uh, in the main event and co-main event of the UFC on Fox. This this is your duo, man. You are far more fascinated with Paige Van Zant and Sage Northcutt than I am. So I feel like I should just get out of the way and let you uh let you talk about this. Really? That's well, that's your take on it? Well, we kind of we just rolled out of your lust for Donald Cerrone versus Damian Maya into now a discussion uh of the Blondarage. <laughs> and I know that, <laughs> that we're basically hitting the Ben Folks high notes this week. Are you going to tell me you don't think it's weird that the we keep throwing these two together? You don't think that's strange at all? I, it works for me. I mean, I don't know how long you're gonna you, you can keep it up, but Page and Sage, man, in the cage, <laughs> it's gonna be insane. Right at the top of the card, too. Uriah Faber's coming back to Sacramento for his his farewell fight, and he's like third. Yeah, if you're Uriah Faber, card. I mean, <laughs> uh, you might want to call your agent or something <laughs> about this particular booking. Well, you don't. Maybe you don't have a whole lot of clout on the way out the door. At um, least you got two halfway interesting fights here, right? For Paige Van Zandt and Sage Northcutt. Well, and uh, even the the other the fourth fight on the main Fox broadcast, uh, Alan Joban versus uh, the somewhat embattled and yet still stubbornly good Mike Perry. You know, it seems like you're going to see some pretty good action in all those fights. And uh, like the, I think the the matchup of the the Sage Northcutt Mickey Gall matchup is. One of those that you, a guy like you, Chad Dundas, and a lot of the other, you know, the MMA heads out there, the the elites in your, in your ivory towers, you're going to act like you're not into this fight, like you think it's stupid, like you think it's just some kind of like hype fest, but you're genuinely going to be curious about this one. Sure, man. The addition of the self-made man, Mickey Gall, That's right. out here makes it makes it pretty interesting. The punk killer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I, I am legitimately a lot more interested in, in both of these fights, seeing Paige Van Zandt fight Michelle Waterson and Sage Northcutt fighting Mickey Gall than I am with the, uh, uh, the, the cult of personality, I guess you could say, around Paige Van Zandt and Sage Northcutt, another CM Punk reference. 
by the way. Uh, because at least now you've got a couple of recognizable opponents. I think in Michelle Watterson, you're going to have a, a real test for Paige Van Zant. For Mickey Gall, I don't know that we know at all what we're going to get. Uh, because, you know, the, we've seen him uh, beat up a couple of part-timers so far in his UFC career. The, the most recently, the most recent one obviously being the high-profile win against CM Punk. And I like, I frankly can't get the, that Vine or that Instagram video out of my head of CM Punk trying to throw that right hand <laughs> and realizing like halfway through that he was about to be taken down uh, by Mickey Gall. But at least we expect Sage Northcutt to be a more credible opponent for Mickey Gall uh, and you wonder if Mickey Gall is, it would be weird to think about it this way, but is Mickey Gall, does he turn out here to be the sacrificial lamb to the, the burgeoning star of Sage Northcutt? Like he comes in with some modicum of, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of a profile in this sport. And, and if Sage Northcutt goes out there and, and, and beats him, does that in a weird way constitute kind of like a stepping stone for Sage Northcutt? No. I'll tell you why. It's a it's kind of a bad deal for Sage Northcutt, at least in terms of getting him out of the zone that he's in now where people think he is the UFC's chosen pet. Oh, wait, Sage uh, Northcutt's middle name is Monroe, according what? to his Wikipedia page? How has this gone overlooked? Breaking news from the Co-Man Event podcast here, unless someone has edited this as a trap for us. <laughs> Which Sage, we will just gleefully fall right Sage into. Sage Monroe Northcutt? That just, <laughs> I just completes the look yeah, right does. there. Um. So but, you, wait, you don't think that Mickey Gall is a different style of opponent than Enrique Martin or Cody Fister? Sure. Or Francisco Trevino? Okay, but here's the thing. Nobody knows anything about Mickey Gall. He could turn out to be not very good, and we would then look back in retrospect and be like, oh yeah, well, he just, you know, he beat a couple of people on the small circuit, and they, he beat CM Punk, who had no business in there in the first place. We didn't know anything about the guy. Right, but uh, by, merely by the virtue of beating CM Punk... Uh, among casual fans who are, you know, maybe theoretically more likely to tune in for a, U a free UFC on Fox event than they would be to like follow Mickey Gall to a, to a pay fight. Uh, won't they see this guy be like, Oh, the guy who beat CM Punk, he looked awesome in that fight. And then they'll, they'll come here and they'll see him get waxed by Sage Northcutt. I mean, maybe if that's is indeed what I know, happens. I know that we are talking about, uh, relative shades of gray here <laughs> but i'm just saying i think for sage northcutt mickey gall shapes up as a more useful opponent than someone like enrique martin well yeah marine enrique marine so yeah. i don't even know the guy's name who who also damn near submitted sage northcutt so yeah you're you're right that you know you if you're sage northcutt you're probably rather a guy with a name with not much experience as opposed to a guy with no name and not much experience. But still, it's not like if he goes out there and beats Mickey Gall, everybody's going to turn around and say, all right, we, we're going to shut up about Sage Northcutt. He's legit. He does deserve all that more money than all these other guys are making. Uh, he's not just some guy that the UFC plucked out of central casting and decided was going to be their guy. See, I think that you and I are thinking about this in different ways. I think you're thinking about what you will think. I don't think I this. will be alone in that. Because <laughs> uh, I, I think, too, that... Like when you see this matchup, the reason that it's so tough to to call, like I don't think this is an easy one to pick. You could make an argument either way, um, because Sage Northcutt has a lot of athleticism and like raw strength and ability, and then when you see him on the ground in some of these fights, he looks 
really vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, even in that, that Enrique Marin fight at UFC 200, it looked like, man, he, you came really close to losing that one. Um, and that was a one that they set up for you to win. Like, like pretty much every fight that you had in the UFC where they have wanted you to win clearly. Uh, and Mickey Gall, uh, what little we know about him is that he can, he's probably pretty good on the ground. Yep. That's probably where he wants to be. So it's, he could very well go out there and completely exploit Sage Northcutt there, or he could go out there and turns out his, his lack of experience or his lack of size and strength, uh, he just kind of gets beat by a superior athlete or, for, and they're still both at this stage in their, their career where Sage Northcutt could show up and be a whole lot better on the ground. Uh, or, you know, at least better enough. So there are a whole lot of like interesting variables that could go into the actual fight for me. But I also think that, you know, the, the Sage Northcutt gimmick, which I think we've, you know, you've been saying for a while and I finally came around. He knows what he's doing there. Um, it's not like no, any situation here is going to get the other, the other UFC fighters or the hardcore MMA fans to start thinking about Sage Northcutt as, okay, we got to take this guy seriously now. If nothing else, the winner of this fight has a leg up in the race to be 2017 prom king of Bayside High or something. <laughs> That's true. Right? Yeah. No, th this is some real Saved by the Bell shit going on here. <laughs> uh, do you want to do Just Saying Stuff and then we will get out of here for this week? Yes, but I need you to go first on Just Saying Stuff. You do? Like, yeah. Why? You got to figure out what yours is? Mine is going to play off of yours. This is like when I go out to eat with my wife and she insists that I order first because she... She ha has not thought about what she's going to order. And then right whatever you order, she's going to say, oh, that sounds good. And she'll just have the same thing. And she then just, you look well, what she, idiots. what she really wants me to do is she wants me to stall for her when she says, <laughs> no, no, you go first. She wants me to like, you know, order something that is going to uh, entice the waiter to ask me a bunch of questions. So then she has time to figure out what she's doing. I feel but like that's what you are doing that, right now. That is not what, what's going on because I know what you're going to say and mine is going to play directly off of it. And you will see. You will see here in a so couple So you're moments. setting me up for a fall. Is what this is. This is not about you, goddammit. Ben, this week I'm just saying I watch John Jones go out there and destroy Dan Henderson at Submission Underground 2 in like, what, six and a half minutes or something like that? Was it even that long? I, it was a blur. And the feeling that I come away with, honestly, is that these fools are lucky that most of the time John Jones gives them the option to punch him in the face. I mean, we, we talk a lot about John Jones's creativity and the devastating stuff he can do on his feet in MMA. But the truth is, after watching this, this bout, I feel like this is the shit John Jones would be best at if we let him just do this all the time. He could be a more dominant submission grappler than he is an, an MMA fighter. He's just built for it. He's out there like the world's biggest, strongest giraffe. And ain't nobody wants to wrestle a giraffe like that. So uh, you're telling me that uh, that you're basically going to have a fight with John Jones where you don't have the option of maybe catching him with a shot, punching him in the face and knocking him out? You're not winning this one, man. You're not winning this one. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I know I've told you before about the time that I went out to upstate New York to do a magazine article on John Jones, a young John Jones, well before he fought for the title. I believe, actually, this was right before he fought uh, Matt Hamill. Yeah. And the kind of my curse of fight magazine cover stories was intact because whenever I did a cover story on somebody, they lost. And this one seemed like, hey, surely this will break the curse. And then he lost by disqualification. Um, but it was 
a kind of a troubled trip where I went to Montreal. He was supposed to be at TriStar. He he realized after I was already in the air, apparently, that his license was suspended. Some driving issues even then. He couldn't go across the border. So then I had to rent a car, drive to, you know, Endicott, New York, or wherever it was. Uh, spent a couple days with him there. And he was training at the Bomb Squad gym, which was basically a shed in back of some dude's house. And I was there with Paul Thatcher, the fight magazine photographer. We're kind of watching them do grappling practice. And all day, when he had heard, I think he noticed a little bit of my cauliflower ear, and he kind of had asked me about grappling. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I do some recreational jujitsu. And all day, he had been kind of telling me, like, oh, get some stuff on, man. Get on the mats with me. Come on, let's do it. And I was just kind of like, okay, maybe I didn't bring any stuff with me. Also, I'm just kind of trying to be watching the guy and not really, you know, focus too much on my own thing. And so ultimately I didn't do it. I, I was like, okay, I'll just kind of watch. I didn't, didn't bring any stuff. I didn't, so I didn't grapple them there. And then I'm watching this submission underground thing and I'm thinking, thank fucking God I did not get on the mats with John Jones like an idiot. Cause even back then, kind of think it would have been bad news for your boy, Ben Folks. Yeah. That pile of trash neck might have turned into a pile of trash several years prior to when it actually did. Not, it would not have done it any favors. I'm just saying. Out there with a giraffe. That's what it's like. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens to or at the UFC on Fox event. Then I believe we get a week off, right? Because the, the next Monday will be the week before Christmas. Man, I don't even know. I think the UFC mercifully has given us the Christmas weekend off. So we can all sit at home and think about Ronda Rousey. Is that what we're going to do? Man, that did you see the mini movie that they made for her? That's right. Like she was going to flip the lights on in the basement and the Iron Man suit was down there. And she's like, "One, just one more job. Get back in the, the Batmobile and race out of here. And I also imagine that when they were putting it together and they were trying to get some uh, sound clips from Amanda Nunes, they were like, no, it's, it's about both of you. It's about both of you. It'll, it'll, it'll be 50, maybe 60, 40. In retrospect, I feel like five. I fumbled my are you fucking kidding me this week, not making it that the Ronda Rousey superhero sequel mini movie anyway uh we'll have stuff to talk about next week as for now right now we're done we're through we're out kind of seems like maybe it helps in the promo department if the people who represent you also own the company yeah that because that was not cheap that ronda rousey trailer for ufc 207 that shit cost some money you could tell and strategically positioned right between the samson superboy fight and